So today, I just want to mention one thing. Uh, it's, it's always kind of funny to me now that we, um, I'm really glad to see kids here on Sundays again. And I know some of you are bummed that you're not seeing them in the rooms because they're going straight to classes and that kind of thing. But it's really funny. I know when, when there's some more sense of normalcy, when at like 10.30, there's like seven families at trying to check in kids all at the same time, you know, because we're pretty good at showing up on time um, or late, however you want to look at that. So I've been asking this question, do you ever feel like you find yourself going from day to day just trying to make it through that day? Wondering if there's ever an end to this or wondering what the purpose is, why you roll out of bed every morning, what it is you're trying to accomplish this day. You wonder if maybe it doesn't matter whether it's a Sunday or a Monday that that our purpose should be the same. Do you ever find yourself wondering if God hears or answers prayers? I mean, maybe do you ever wonder how, how we can get a fresh start, a new opportunity, a chance to live a uniquely different way, that maybe our lives really could go a different direction than they have before? Or maybe do you find yourself wondering that you can see the physical world all around us, but do you find yourself ever wondering, like, what do we do with this spiritual world that we think probably exists, but we can't see it or touch it or feel it? How do we deal with the physical and the spiritual? What does that mean for us? Often we'll hear people talk about the idea that we're going to go to heaven. And, and from a biblical perspective, that's actually a bad view. I don't have time to talk a lot about it, but I'd say this. What we begin to see is heaven is really more like God's realm. And we can see, like, the earth, we can see the world around us, but what do we do that begin to recognize that maybe heaven and earth are two sides of the same coin? What if God is present at work in the world around us? And what if we're invited to experience eternity in the present moment? We're to live as if heaven is a reality here and now, not in its fullness, not the way it maybe we hope someday when all wrongs are made right, but what if, what if, what if the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near what Jesus taught over his words? What if that were to reshape the way we understood the world? And what if we began to recognize we really could live a different way? So this is why we've been in this series, we look at these two guys, Peter and John, and their writings in the New Testament. We look at what they wrote, because they're two people who knew Jesus well. Today we're in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to talk about that, but there's this thing that John has done throughout his letter, and we haven't really talked about it. I've kind of left it out on purpose, and I have left it out on purpose for lots of reasons, because when I say what it is, you're going to go, lots of people have all kinds of connotation, whether it's from movies or all kinds of other things, but John defines a particular word in a particular way. And this particular word messes with our minds, but I, I kind of have to reference it a little bit before we move to the second half of this chapter. John says this. He says, um, if we begin to live as if eternity is present in this reality, then there are things that lead us away from that way of life. In fact, it's the way, um, and see, Wright says it this way, it's a new way of being human. And so John talks about like the anti-human, and he actually uses a particular word. He uses the word anti-Christ. He talks about an, an anti-Christ, a person who's against Christ, in other words. But, but how does John define that? John defines it in a particular way. He defines it in this way, anyone who denies the humanity of Jesus. Now, why would it matter so much to John if someone's denying whether Jesus is really human, if, if he really is like the Son of God? I mean, these are, these are things that honestly keep some of us from believing in Jesus and following him because we see these pictures, these things, and we're not sure what to do with them. And John wants us to know, well, here's the thing. 
Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And why does that matter? Because what if, what if one of the goals of Jesus was to show us how to live as if we are fully human? And so the full humanity of Jesus is a glimpse of what it might look like when heaven enters into our current reality. And we embrace that as a particular way of life. A life that is filled with hope, and goodness, and love, in spite of the circumstances all around us. So John says, listen, anyone who denies the humanity of Jesus, they're against the Christ, against him, against the fullness of what God has for you and I. So Jesus came to show us the fullness of what humanity could be and should be as intended to be. And you and I are invited into this particular way of life. So now, with that as the backdrop, we look at these words that John writes about. What's that look like then for us? First John chapter 5, verse 13, he writes these words. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true By being in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I got to be honest with you. I kind of wish I could ask John a lot of questions about this particular passage. Because honestly, there's some things that we're not privy to. In fact, scholars are not sure. Like there's a lot of like debate on some of the things that John's trying to write here. Because they're going, we think he means this, but we don't really know. It's most likely he means these things, but but we're not 100% sure because we weren't there. This is one of the things that becomes hard for us when we know authors write to particular groups of people at particular times in history, and so we just get to eavesdrop in on their conversation, and that's kind of what we're doing here. And so what's John trying to get across? This idea that how do we live as a people who recognize that eternity is seen in this present reality? Maybe I'd say it a different way. The essence of the Christian life is eternal. We're invited to share in life with God here and now. We're invited to share in this eternal life with God here and now to recognize that heaven and earth may be two sides of the same coin, but we're invited to live as if heaven is here in these moments. Now, to be clear, we see moments of hell all around us. We also get glimpses. I was like, glimpses of heaven. We're called and invited to live as if it is a true reality in this moment, here and now. And this, for us, becomes such a powerful thing for us. And so how do we do that? How do we live as if heaven and eternity enters into this current reality? We do that through prayer. 
And John says, well, how, how do we pray, right? Because we all feel like we pray and like no one hears. We don't know what to do with that. And we're, we're left wrestling and we're uncertain. And so yet, but maybe, maybe there's a particular line that, that John says it's helpful. I mean, he does say that God hears and listens, but sometimes we pray things that sound kind of like this, right? Oh, God, just help me to win the lottery this month. I really would like a lot of money, and that would be really great. Or I really want an Aston Martin. Okay, I really do. I'll never have one, but it sounds like a great idea. Actually, one of my favorite stories here is I mentioned that one other time, um, and someone bought me a little matchbox car of an Aston Martin, and it was sitting on my desk. That was pretty good, so I thought that was funny. Except some kid took it, so I don't know who took it, so it's gone now. And so he's not saying pray these kind of things like, I, I really hope I get, you know, the job that pays a lot more than that job. And, and not that those are bad things, but he says a particular line that's helpful for us. He says that God hears and answers our prayers when we pray within what is God's will. Like, what's that? How do I know that? Well, you winning the lottery probably isn't it. I can probably tell you that one safely. Um, good for you if you do. But, but what does it begin to look like if the reality of what we find in this is that we begin to move into a place where we begin to look more and more like Jesus? What's God's desire for us? That we live as the first fruits of the resurrected people, that we live a redeemed life, that love would be made manifest in our life, and we'd live as the overflow of God's redeeming love. So the question becomes, how are we praying in this? How do we do that? Um, see, prayer done rightly redirects our mind to Christ. Now, do you not pray your request? No, pray. Pray for whatever you want to pray for. God wants to be in conversation with you, but also we pray that our will will begin to line up with his. See, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer does change us. The character and nature of God doesn't change by our prayer. Now, God may intercede. He may be at work. He may do something. That's possible, but, but prayer doesn't change God. It does change us. And so I love this quote from William, William Barclay. He says this. He says, here's something on which to ponder. We're so apt to think that prayer is asking God for what we want, whereas true prayer is asking God for what he wants. Prayer is not only talking to God, even more it is listening to him. Now, there's something about God's will for our lives that somehow we would be so radically transformed that our lives would look so radically different that we'd be able to live as if heaven is a reality in this life in the midst of the world in which we live, even with hells all around us. I know that sounds crazy, right? What if? What if there's a way that regardless of our circumstances, something could happen so deeply within us that who we are, the essence of our being changes? And this is what John is inviting us into. And this is what happens when we begin to pray in such a way that it changes us. So where does this type of prayer lead us? What, what happens in this when we begin to pray like this? What happens when we begin to pray as if God really is redeeming and restoring all that is broken in this world? What happens then? Well, then we begin to pray not only for ourselves, but what we find is we begin to pray for others. That once we've experienced this thing where God changes us, we desperately desire for others to experience the same life-changing thing that we have. And so we don't pray like with a sense of superiority, but this sense of humility. 
we long for God to do in others what he's done in us because we, we've come to know our, our true place in the world. And we've come to the place where not only do we know our true place, but go back to what I said at the beginning, we know why we get out of bed every morning. We know the purpose of our day. We the gist of what we're living for. It doesn't matter whether it's Sunday or Monday or Friday, we live for the same thing. And then he says, sometimes we begin to pray for others. And so I... I want to say it this way. Um, sometimes our prayer leads us to action, right? Sometimes we begin to see someone going in a certain direction, and we go, oh, man, they're going to a place that if they continue down this path, I love them too much to let them go where they're going to end up, right? We do that with kids all the time, right? If your kid, you see he's going to, like, jump off something, and they're going to kill themselves, you stop them, right? My son loves to play with fires like every other male I know. And there are times like, hey, don't touch that. That's really hot. Are you sure? Pretty sure. It's red, right? Like, it's pretty warm. Don't do that. But I want to. I get it. I do too. But I know how it ends. Us in the ER. Let's not do this. But what might happen when sometimes we go to someone and we know where they're going is leading to death. It's leading to brokenness. It's leading to destruction. We see it in relationships, right? We, excuse me. We know, um, think about it this way. I've talked to dads who have daughters, and they're dating that guy, you know, the guy that you wish they'd never date. And they see where it's going, and they don't know how to stop it. I mean, because you can't lock your daughter in a room. That doesn't end well. That's actually illegal. Um, and they don't know what to do, because they know where it's going, because they try to talk to their daughter, and they like, plead, and they long, and they hope. And yet, there's only so much you can do, but you can, but here's, here's the thing that I think it begins to matter. The way a father goes to a daughter in that moment can have massive implications for the future. If we go with an iron fist, she's probably going to end up with that guy. See, the way in which we go to another person matters as much as the words we say. And so we can go with almost anything to anyone if our heart's right. If we ever go from a place of superiority, like I know better, I've done this, I'm, I just know. Man, no one wants to listen to that person. Right? That's where the church get, does get a black eye, where Christians do get a black eye. We're like, look, stop pointing your finger, myself included. Right? Pointing fingers doesn't get results that we long for, but approaching with humility and love and compassion and grace and gentleness, it just might lead to the place where people begin to hear our voice. Just might happen there. You know, so then, then John uses this line, he says, sin that leads to death. And I gotta be honest with you, there is no scholar, I think I read a half dozen commentaries this week, and no one knows for sure what John's trying to say. I'll give you the best two ideas that they have for what John's trying to get across. Um, and one, and they're not trying to say like the idea of the mortal sins versus venial sins. We're not, we're not like trying to compare sins here. That's not the goal here. But maybe what they're trying to get across is this, that, that the sin that leads to death is denying that Jesus is the Christ, that he is fully man and fully God. The second part of that is this idea that rather than just, you know, a singular sin, but it's the idea that someone who willfully continues to sin. 
right, who knows that there's something they shouldn't be doing, there's a particular way of life that they're living that they know they shouldn't be living, and they continue to live it again and again and again and again. Right? Oh, I'm just going to, you know, I'll just ask for forgiveness. It'll be okay. And we'll keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, whatever that thing may be. Right? And I need to be very clear here. Um, John is always talking about how he, we approach brothers and sisters in Christ, those who claim to be followers of Jesus, not how we approach people who don't claim that. Right? That's also where the church, we get a, pretty good at pointing our fingers, right? Now, we, if we love someone enough, we may invite them into a particular way of life. But what John's saying here is this. When someone claims to know and love Jesus, and that's the defining characteristic of their life, then we can go and have these conversations. And when we see someone living in such a way that they're, they're I'd say it this way. It's one thing to continue to go down a path that will ultimately lead to death. It's another thing to stumble on a journey that leads to holiness. Willfully continue to live in one particular way and committing a sin are two different things. And this is where we do ask for prayer to have the wisdom to know the difference. For one, we probably keep our mouth shut because we don't really need to say anything. They kind of get it. For the other, that's where we do approach in love and go, hey, I'm concerned because I know where this leads, and I love you too much to say something. And so what are ways that we begin to think about this? How do we begin to understand this journey? And, and so there's a common phrase we often hear people say, like, I think this might be helpful, right? Um, the ends justify the means. You've heard that phrase. Maybe you've used that phrase. Well, as Christians, can I tell you that's a really bad response? The ends don't justify the means. As Christians... The means don't justify the ends. The means are the ends, and they matter. Whether that's in business, in politics, in parenting, in relationships, the means matter. They speak to our character. They speak to who we are. As Christians, we recognize the journey is as important as the destination. It's not that we just get to go jump to the other end. How we live day in and day out, how we speak to people, how we live matters so much because that ultimately leads to the ends. It's a myth that we can jump over that. And so what, what some ways we can think about that? Well, here's what we believe as Christians, right? We, we think this is what John's trying to get across. Um, that sin doesn't have to have power over our life. It doesn't have to. We sometimes give it more power, but this is what Jesus says. Hey, listen, I've come that you may have a life and have it to its fullest so that we can experience this kind of heaven on earth in these moments. We can think of it this way, that, that Christians are on the side of God against the world. Now, I need to be clear how John defines world. Again, John defines world as those who claim that Jesus isn't fully man, not like your neighbor who doesn't claim to be a Christian. That's not the world that John's writing about. John actually addressed that in another book he wrote, and he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not to to condemn, but to redeem, right? This, This is the essence of what John wants to get across. How do we live as a people who are against the idea that we diminish the work and the person of Jesus? And Christians are conscious that they've entered a reality in which eternity has broken in, and we get to live in this constant conversation with God. And then John does this weird thing. He like just stops almost and writes some weird line at the end of this letter that we go, huh, that's kind of weird. In fact, he says, keep yourselves from idols. 
what? You've been talking about love, and you've been talking about how we live in this way, how we pray, and then you say, oh, and keep yourselves from idols. Like, it's almost like an afterthought. It's like a little PS I'm throwing in here at the end. I don't really know what to say, but I didn't have where else to put it in the letter, so I'm going to throw it here at the very end. Because um, maybe you're like me, you're like, you know, I don't really struggle with that. Nothing made of gold or silver or marble or stone. Like, yeah, not really something I'm worshiping. No problem. Got it. But what if I rephrase the last line in this way? What if he's really trying to say this? Keep yourselves from all objects of false devotion. Huh. Well, that's a little different. Um, right, we've all heard the phrase, we are what we eat. But what John's trying to say here is we are what we worship. What are those things that have my affection, my loyalty, my time, my investment? Where do I put my devotion? All right, so I was thinking about where we often see our devotion. So on a normal Saturday in the fall, if we were to drive by one of hundreds of places in our country, um, you would find a particular scene greeting you. What you'd find is you would see people dressed in particular colors. In fact, sometimes they do face paint. They gather for hours upon hours in large venues with thousands upon thousands of people. And they scream at the top of their lungs. It doesn't matter the weather either. Hot, cold, raining, snowing, sunny, doesn't matter. They're there by the thousands. And they're passionate. And it is a form of worship. And sometimes when the leader of the worship on their side doesn't do a good job, they want a new one. And they make it abundantly clear. And they'll give money to that end. If you haven't figured out what I'm talking about yet, I'm talking about college football. Every Saturday. Right now it's a little weird, right? Because there's only a couple stadiums that have fans. But, but most years, other than this one, you'll see thousands upon thousands of people, what, 100,000 people in Ann Arbor? I was there for Brady Hoke's last home game, and I listened to 100,000 people Minus me, chanting, fire hoke. You think that's not a form of adoration, worship? It is. The question as Christians is, does it have its proper place? Am I saying you can't enjoy college football? I sure hope not, because I look forward to most Notre Dame games. Except the ones where they lose. And we wonder about the coach, right? <laughs> But do things have their proper place in our life? And so this begs the question, are we living as if we are God's new creation here and now? I think the words from Matthew are helpful for this. In Matthew chapter 6, he writes these words, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What are we seeking first? What do we seek first? A couple things I hope we got from this passage today. One, are we spending time in prayer? and prayer that might change us? And are we making decisions that are going to lead our life to the direction we want it to go? Here's what I might say to that. Choices shape habits. Habits influence direction. And direction determines destiny. Choices shape habits. Habits influence direction. And direction determines destiny. Now, I want to be clear with what I mean by destiny. It doesn't mean that everything in life works out perfectly. Where we end, in the end, 
is shaped by those things. See, our daily choices matter. They matter so much because we're asking this question every, every day with every decision I make. Am I making decisions that are leading to what I hope for for my kids, for my job, for my friends, for my spouse? Am I making decisions that are leading to the future I long for, or am I making decisions daily with no thought to those things, just hoping to make it from day to day, not thinking about the future? And this is the good news of Jesus. He invites us to live as if his kingdom has broken in here and now, to become the kind of people who live from a place of love. And what might it look like? Um, it looks like this story that I love, and I've read it before, but I feel like it's worth reading again. This is from a guy named Tony Campole, and he writes these words. I head up an organization that has created a missionary enterprise in Haiti. Presently, through the efforts of those who have taken over this ministry, a network of some 85 schools has been established. They serve children who have been reduced to a life that is pretty close to slavery. The children in these schools, for the most part, come from families that are so poor they've had to give their children away to other families who can feed them. These oppressed youngsters are given the most menial task imaginable, and they can expect to spend their lives in hard labor. Such children carry water for most of the day and in between work in the sugar fields. Classes are held from the late afternoon into the evening because these children are not free to go to school during the regular daytime hours. Nevertheless, they attend the school with great faithfulness because they know that if they can learn to read and write in a country where the illiteracy rate is 85%, they have a chance to escape their oppressive lives. When I go down there, I usually stay at a Holiday Inn right in the center of Port-au-Prince. Once, when I was walking to the entrance of the hotel, I was intercepted by three girls. I called them girls because they looked to be about 15 or 16 years of age. The one in the middle said, Mister, for $10, you could have me all night long. I was stunned by what she had said. I turned to the girl next to her and asked, Can I have you for $10? She nodded approval. I asked the third girl the same question. She tried to conceal her contempt for me with a smile. But it's hard to look sexy when you're 15 or 16 and you're very poor and your family is hungry. I said, Fine, I've got $30. I'm in room 210. You be up there in half an hour. I'll pay you then, and I want all three of you for the whole night. Now, I got to be honest with you, at this point, as a pastor, I would be freaking out if I were to get caught in this, but we'll finish the story. I rushed up to the room and got on the phone and called down to the concierge desk. I said, send every Walt Disney vi cartoon video you have up to room 210. Anything by Disney, send it up to me. I called down to the restaurant and asked if they made banana splits. I told them that I wanted banana splits with extra everything. I wanted them to be huge and delicious. I wanted extra whipped cream, extra chocolate syrup, extra nuts. I wanted, I wanted four of them. Within the half hour, the videos came, the three girls came, and the banana splits came. I sat the girls down on the edge of the bed. We ate the banana splits. We watched the videos. We had a little party as we watched the videos until about one in the morning. That's when the last of them fell asleep across the bed. As I sat there in the stuffed chair looking at their little bodies strewn across the bed, I thought to myself, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Tomorrow they'll be back on the streets, 
Her mother will be selling their little bodies for $10 a throw because there will always be rotten, ugly men who will destroy the dignity of little girls for $10 a night. Nothing's changed. And the Spirit spoke to me and said, but for one night, Tony, you let them be little girls again. For one night, you let them be kids. You didn't change their lives, but for one night, you gave them back their childhoods. I'm convinced that that little expression of love and that little party in room 10, 210 of the Holiday Inn in Port-au-Prince was the work of the Holy Spirit. The truth is, we may not be able to change the entire world with one act. That's not how it works. But if all of us begin to embrace this idea that God wants us to live as if eternity is present in this current reality, and all of us continue to make one little decision to change the future destiny of our own lives and the lives of others, or to live from a place that we begin to pray as if God's will is becoming a reality in our life and in this world around us, if we begin to live in that particular way, then we might, we just might truly change the world. In fact, I don't have time to go into it today. I will another day, but I want to say what I believe to be true with all my being. If I were to show you historically the work of the church over the last 2,000 years, the world is markedly better today than at any point in human history by any metric you want to bring up. You know why? It's not because of any country. It's not because of any politician. It's not because of any nonprofit organization. It's because of Christ's church and the work of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to take communion together as a reminder that we desperately are in need of the grace of God, that you and I are never enough on our own, that we can never get to the place. We can never become the people we want to be. We can never quite get to the place where we can live as if heaven is a reality in this current reality. Except for the grace of God. Except for Christ's work we might begin to live as this unique people of faith who so radically redefined that we would live such a way that we would throw a party in room 210 by the way we live every single day. And so this morning, we take this little cup, and I know it's not as good as when we tear up a piece of bread, but it is what it is in these days. And we have this piece of bread that represents the broken body of Christ's. So one of the things the scriptures remind us is to kind of just to take note of ourselves, to recognize are we in right relationship with God and others, and so it is for us in these moments to take just a moment to reflect and go, God, is there an area in my life that I need to say, hey, I need you at work in this. I need to confess something in me that needs to be reshaped. So this is that moment. And sometimes here's how we do it. We say, God, as I take these elements, these Symbols of your grace, may they be for me the saving grace I desperately need so that I become more and more like your son in this world and I love as he loved and I help bring about your eternity into this present reality. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and eat. 
Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. For the way you love us, for the way you come near, for the way you invite us to be your unique people in the midst of brokenness all around us. You are desperately desiring to redeem and restore all that is broken, and you do it through your church. You do it through us. So, Father, we ask today that you would help us to become more and more your people. That each and every day we might make decisions that bring heaven into this current reality, that our lives might become reflections of the depth of your love. That we'd find that we would wake every day with a sense of purpose, that we know what we live for. So, Father, help us to be that kind of unique people. We thank you for these elements that we've partaken. They're just representative of your life, death, and resurrection for us, but they remind us of the grace of God that knows no ends and no bounds. So we thank you for the love of your son. It's in his name that we pray.